want to introduce the sermon today with a little story. But a boy that started first grade, or actually about third grade, and his dad asked him at breakfast, he said, well, how did your first week in school go? And the boy was a little bit quiet. And he said, well, how did the first week of school go? And he said, I got in trouble three times. Dad said, what did you do to get in trouble three times? So, well, the teacher kept asking questions, and she didn't like my answer. He said, what kind of question did he ask? Well, the first question was the teacher said, what's your favorite animal? I said, fried chicken. (laughs) So the whole class laughed, but she didn't laugh, and she sent me down to the principal's office. And the principal said, why are you here? And he said, well, I, I answered my teacher's question, and she didn't like it. He said, look, your teacher loves animals, so, so don't do that again, okay? So the next day in class, the teacher said, um, <clears throat> what's your favorite live animal? And I said, chicken. And she said, why? And I said, because you can make fried chicken out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and she sent me to the office again. And the teacher said, or the principal said, look, she's a vegetarian. <laughs> She doesn't believe you should be eating animals, so please don't do that again. And Dad said, okay, what was the next question? The little boy said, well, the next day she said, who's your favorite person? And I said, Colonel Saunders. (laughs) And she sent me to the office again. (laughs) Now, what does that have to do with the sermon? I want to ask you some questions. And I'm not going to send you to the office. But, you know, if you don't know the answer, you might get in trouble. We will be observing the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread, as we always have. In my case, I think for 40-some years or more. Some of you probably even longer than that. <clears throat> but many professing Christians will not be keeping the Passover. They will not be observing the Days of Unleavened Bread. Instead, they may be buying new Easter bonnets, coloring some eggs, going to Easter sunrise services. They won't be doing what we will be doing. Why do we do what we do? Why do we teach what we do? Because many others are not teaching these things or not doing these things. In fact, there are probably many people that used to keep the Passover and used to keep the Days of Unleavened Bread, with you and with me, that are no longer doing that because they feel they've been liberated from those things. And all these Old Testament customs are done away with, and they don't have to do them anymore. Another question, can you explain to yourself why you keep the Passover and why you observe the Days of Unleavened Bread? Can you explain to anybody else that might ask you why you do these things? When most Christians don't, most professing Christians don't do those things. We're even keeping the days different than many Jewish people. I had a uh, conversation with one of our ministers not too long ago, and he related a little story. He had a conversation with a man who used to be a minister, Actually, I guess he still is. But he left the teachings that we follow. He was raised in the church. He was a graduate of Ambassador College. But he rejected everything. 
and went away from those teachings. And he was asked, well, why did you do that? He made a very interesting statement. He said, I was paid to teach certain things, but I never believed it. I was paid to teach certain things, but I never believed it. And my question to you is, what do you believe about the Passover and about the Days of Unleavened Bread? Have you proven these things to yourself? Do you deeply believe those things? You know, Mr. League would stand up next week. I'll blame him. And say, you know, we've changed our teaching. We're no longer going to be keeping the Days of Unleavened Bread. What would you do? Well, they changed it. We don't have to do it anymore, which is what some people did in the 5 to 10 to 15 years just past. I want to talk about preparing for the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. That's what I've entitled the sermon. How do we prepare? What do we do? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? Do you know? Can you explain it very clearly and concisely? Let's look at a couple of things. Why do we teach what we do? Short answer is because it's biblical and because it's historical. And it's the truth. It's not something that somebody made up. You know, people have accused Mr. Armstrong of making up a whole lot of things and maybe accused you of believing a certain lot of things that are just not true. But we do these things because they are biblical and because they are historically correct and they are the truth. As we heard in the sermonette, the Holy Days picture the plan and the purpose that God is working out on this earth. Now, the Bible doesn't just come out and say, this is the plan of God. But you go to Leviticus 23, put those holy days and festivals down on a piece of paper. You know, the Passover pictures, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was killed, literally looked forward to that sacrifice. These festivals picture the plan and purpose of God, the Salvation, the plan of salvation that God is working out on this earth that's going to impact all human beings is an inclusive plan. That Christ died for our sins. That's what the Passover pictures. The Days of Unleavened Bread picture putting sin out of our lives. We've got to become sinless. We've got to become like Jesus Christ. The day of Pentecost pictures the starting of the New Testament church, the outpouring of God's spirit. And then the fall holy days picture other parts of that plan. I remember hearing a young fellow that uh, was one of the leaders in the uh, breakup of the church, 1995 or so. And he made the statement in a sermon that he gave. He said, there is no plan and purpose. God doesn't have an overall plan. Jesus is the plan. That's the plan. But that doesn't fit with the scriptures. Turn to Ephesians very quickly. In fact, you might look up in a concordance. Look up the word purpose. Does God have a purpose? Is he working out a purpose on this earth? Paul mentions here just one of the places, or several different places in Ephesians. Mentions in verse 4 that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's talking about a predetermined plan that God had. 
Verse 5, having predestined us or because of having a predetermined plan. He predestined or predetermined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to his good pleasure and his good will. Verse 11, and in him, in Jesus Christ also, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has a plan and a purpose that he's working out on this earth. Turn to chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul says, To me, who am less than the uh, least of the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Uh, We can be part of God's plan and purpose which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now in the manifold wisdom of God, or now that the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he, God, has accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. God has a plan. He has a purpose. And it's pictured in the festivals of God that are listed in Leviticus 23. And we stop keeping those days and start keeping Easter and Christmas. We lose sight of the plan of God and the purpose of God. That's why we do this every year. That's why we're commanded to rehearse these days every year. So why do we keep the Passover and why do we keep the Days of Unleavened Bread? Let's look at those questions just to begin with, let's turn back to Exodus chapter 12. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 12. <clears throat> now some people have been told, well, the Old Testament is all fulfilled. It's all done away with. You don't have to do that. You know, we're New Testament Christians. And yet that doesn't wash whenever we look at the Scriptures, read the Scriptures in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want to read you something that will kind of set the stage for why we're looking at the Old Testament to begin with. This comes from a textbook that we used for the Old Testament survey class in Living University. And it's kind of summarizing the Old Testament. I thought it was very interesting the way it was put. It says, today many, now this is written by an author that is not part of the Church of God. He's He's a Christian, but he happens to believe that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are valid. He says, many today assume, actually this is part of my writing here, many today assume that the Old Testament is an outdated relic filled with useless fables and outmoded traditions. However, this was not the view of Jesus Christ or his disciples or the early church. The Old Testament and the New Testaments were preserved by God and designed to be read and understood together. And I'm paraphrasing him, uh, the author of this textbook. The Old Testament provides the literary background for the New Testament. Many things that are talked about in the New Testament you can't really understand unless you understand what the Old Testament had to say about it. The Old Testament provides the literary background for the New Testament with nearly 300 references in the New Testament by New Testament writers to the Old Testament. They didn't think it was done away with. When Paul wanted to speak with authority, he quoted the Old Testament. To say, look, here's the authority I'm building on. 
The Old Testament was the historical foundation for the new, as well as the theological foundation for the new. New Testament authors repeatedly affirm the theological truths of the Old Testament. And then I quote from the textbook. It says, most of the great doctrinal truths about the Sabbath, about the holy days, about a number of other things, most of the great doctrinal truths of the church are defined first, not in the New Testament, but in the Old. Furthermore, many of these truths are not defined at all in the New Testament. The Old Testament is clearly the literary, historical, and theological matrix of the New. I want to just mention that now because I'm going to talk about the Sabbath in just a little bit. And one of the issues about the Sabbath is one of the arguments is, well, it's not really mentioned in the New Testament. So therefore, we really don't need to follow it. But this is twisting the scripture, as we will see. If we go back to Exodus chapter 12, where the Passover is discussed and the Days of Unleavened Bread are introduced. God is bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. They've been in slavery in Egypt for quite some time. And he's building a nation. He's laying a theological groundwork for the nation of Israel. Talks about the calendar here in verse 2 of chapter 12. Um, This month shall be your beginning of months. He's talking about the month of Abib or Nisan. And it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak unto the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of the month are to take a lamb without blemish. Now, this is picturing Jesus Christ. Verse 5, The lamb shall be without blemish, male of the first year. Then you keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight. So it was to be killed at twilight on the fourteenth. Now, there are people today that think, Well, we ought to be keeping the Passover on the fifteenth at the end of the 14th. And yet the Bible says it was to be killed on the 14th. If you wait to the end of the 14th and the sun goes down and you're in a twilight period, you're no longer on the 14th. The 15th begins at sunset. And the twilight period is that period just after the sun goes down and then it's still kind of light. So if you kill the lamb at twilight on the 14th, it's got to be at the beginning of the 14th, not at the end of the 14th and the beginning of the 15th. So there's some people today that say we have it wrong, but the Bible says the Passover is to be killed and eaten on the 14th, which would be at the beginning of the 14th. Uh, There was an argument in the early church when the Catholic Church wanted to introduce Easter. It was called the Quarto Deciman controversy. Quarto is four, Deciman is ten. It was an issue about the 14th. The Catholic Church wanted to keep, uh, promote uh, the keeping of Easter. Uh, whereas the disciples of John in Asia Minor sent representatives to the Pope in Rome. He wasn't even a Pope at that time, the Bishop of Rome. He said, we can't do it. We can't keep Easter because we have always kept the Passover on the 14th with John the Apostle. So this is what history has to say about these things. Uh, Some people that want to keep Passover on the 15th today ought to talk, (laughs) ought to read the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, the 11th edition. It talks about some of these things. The Passover is to be kept at the beginning of the 14th. 
That's the biblical instruction. That's when Christ kept it. He mentions it's to be killed at twilight. The word here in the Hebrew is a phrase, ben ha abeim, arbeim, b-e-n-h-a, then a-r-b-a-y-i-m, ben ha arbeim. And it means at twilight, just after sunset, but before it's dark. So these were the instructions we find in the scriptures. Uh, Talks about no leaven is to be uh, uh, left in your homes during the days of unleavened bread. And we just heard a sermonette describing those things. And I'd just like to make one other comment about the days of unleavened bread. I think sometimes we can get so involved in deleavening our houses and deleavening our cars that we forget the real lesson is we're supposed to deleaven our lives. You know, so we got the cleanest car in the block. we got the cleanest house in town. But we're still making snide comments about people and stirring up issues here and there and carrying grudges and whatever. All that stuff has got to go, as we will see. We've got to be a different person. We've got to be striving to become different people. And the cleaning out of the leaven, wherever it might be, is really a lesson for us that we need to be looking into our lives uh, with that same zeal to get rid of things that don't belong there. It's a very important object lesson. So these are the instructions we find in the scriptures. Uh, You can go to Leviticus 23 where it mentions that these uh, festivals are to be kept throughout your generations. In other words, (laughs) forever. We go to the New Testament to Luke chapter 22. Some very interesting observations there that Luke makes about Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Some uh, people refer to this whole period of time as the Passover period. Luke actually does that here. Down in verse uh, 15, this was after Jesus sent his disciples to prepare the Passover um, verse 8 it mentions there, he sent Peter and John, go prepare the Passover. Now, some people have said, you know, Jesus really didn't keep the Passover. Well, you might want to take that up with uh, Luke and with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, you go prepare the Passover. He was observing the Passover. Down in verse 15, it says, Jesus is telling his disciples then, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He said, this is the last time I'm going to keep a Passover with you until we are in the kingdom of God. He was looking forward to the Passover. It was a positive experience for him. So Jesus kept the Passover. We have already referred to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but let's go there very quickly because we're looking at New Testament instructions. Paul was writing the, <clears throat> the letter to the church at Corinth. They had issues in the congregation where the, the congregation had a number of sins that were very blatantly obvious, uh, sexual immorality. And again, the, <clears throat> the wording of Paul doesn't make a lot of sense unless we understand a little bit about the Old Testament instructions about putting leaven out of our homes and out of our lives. Now, Paul is writing to the New Testament church. Verse 2, he says, you're puffed up. 
In other words, you, you think you're converted. You think you're Christian, but he says you're puffed up. You're, you're filled with leaven. And have not rather mourned. In other words, you ought to be really ashamed of yourselves, what's going on there. Down in verse 6, he says, your glorying is not good. In other words, they, they was basically saying, look, we're, we're, we're very tolerant here. We can, we can put up with uh, a lot of the stuff that's going on. We, we're just very understanding. And yet Paul says, no, put, that church, put the person out from among you because they're bringing in wrong attitudes and wrong actions. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, leaven can be wrong doctrine. Leaven can be sinful actions, things that don't belong. Therefore, purge out the old leaven. Get rid of these sins. That's what he was talking about, the sexual immorality, that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. Now, they weren't unleavened physically. Excuse me. They weren't unleavened spiritually. They still had sin there. But the implication of this verse is, you're unleavened because you're probably going through the days of unleavened bread. That's the only way it makes sense. They'd gotten rid of physical leaven, but they still had these sins that they were dealing with. So Paul is using the instructions from the Old Testament. Uh, and you need the Old Testament instructions to understand what he's actually talking about here. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Now, he's telling the early New Testament church to keep the feast. It wasn't done away with. To keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Now, we've got to be careful that we get rid of some of that if we still carry it with us as we go through the days of unleavened bread. To get rid of those things and then replace it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, now let's go to 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul is giving instructions about the Passover. And this will bring us to the second section of the um, sermon this afternoon. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, notice in verse 1, Paul says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now we just saw that Jesus Christ kept the Passover. And then we see Paul telling the church to keep the Passover. So he's saying, imitate me, follow me like I follow Jesus Christ. And down in verse um, <clears throat> 20 then, he starts talking about the Passover. Let's go to verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. In other words, my instructions came from Jesus Christ. I am passing them on to you. Uh, <clears throat> that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he gave thanks and he said, take and eat, this is my body, or this is symbolic of my body. Now, the bread is not transformed into the body of Christ, as the Catholic Church teaches in transubstantiation. This is an idea that came out of paganism, that the ancient priests in Egypt believed that little wafers were transformed into the body of Osiris. And that's where some of these things come from. Uh, the bread at the Passover is symbolic of Christ's broken body. And we're to remember that. This do in remembrance of me. The same thing, he took the cup after supper, saying the cup is now, uh, the cup is the new covenant. In other words, symbolic of the new covenant. In my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, many Protestants, and I think even in the Catholic Church, they say, well, as, as often as we do it is uh, okay. And yet the only instructions we find in the Scripture, these are to be annual observances. 
as we read in Exodus chapter 12. It's to be an annual observance. You, know, you don't observe your birthday every day of the week. You know, you're, you're only one year older on the day that you were born. These are annual observances. And people that take liberties with these things, as I saw in a paper recently, said, uh, you know, infant baptism is now permissible. Well, that ignores what ancient or what history says about infant baptism. It didn't start until about 400 or so in North Africa, which was a very liberal part of uh, the so-called Christian world. You, know, you can't really repent as a child because in many cases you haven't done too much except maybe giving your parents a bad time. <laughs> you know, people are baptized whenever they repent, when they're old enough to understand that what they did and what they've done was wrong. It's a mature adult thing. It's not for kids. But they can, people can come up with all kind of reasoning to reason around uh, the, a very important ceremony. But then Paul gives some very important instructions, beginning in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, now he'll explain a little bit later what that manner is that's unworthy, will be guilty of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But let a man or let a person examine himself. And this is one of the things that we need to do as we prepare for the Passover and as we go through the days of unleavened bread is to examine ourselves, to look into the scriptures and to look for leaven that might be there, to examine ourselves and so let that person eat of the bread, drink of the cup. And again, he repeats himself. For he who eats or she who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. If Jesus Christ, as the sinless Son of God, came to this earth, gave his life as a sacrifice, he was beaten, he was nailed to a cross. And if you've seen the movie The Passion, uh, which is a pretty gory thing, but it kind of illustrates what Jesus Christ went through with a terrible beating. But he did that because sin requires a penalty. There are consequences of sin. And yet that's not the message that the world sends today. Oh, you committed adultery? Big deal. You know, everybody does that. You committed fornication? Everybody does that. Don't worry about it. You know, God loves you. No, we've got to come to the point where we realize my sins required the death of Jesus Christ. And we've got to come to realize that. So this is what Paul is talking about. We need to examine ourselves. Verse 31. Actually, verse 30 says, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you. They've not really understood that Jesus Christ died, that not only our sins could be forgiven, that our diseases could be healed, that we could be cleansed. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we would look into our lives, get rid of the sin that is there, then God doesn't have to judge us. And that's why we're given instructions. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. And if we ask God, God, show me what I need to change during the days of unleavened bread. And then we're studying the scriptures. He'll help us make that connection of what we need to change. 
So Paul is telling us here we need to examine ourselves. Uh, Let me just give you a number of other scriptures that we're not going to turn to. In 1 John 3, 4, the the Bible defines what sin is. Some people think drinking and dancing and playing cards and stuff like that is is sinful. It may be if you're... (laughs) betting your life savings and doing things like that and you're dancing in ways that are really not nice. But sin is defined as the transgression of the law. Sin is the transgression of the law, breaking the laws of God. So we've got to go back and study the laws of God and ask ourselves, what am I doing? Am I playing games? Am I breaking the laws of God? Or am I living within the laws of God? Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. We've all sinned, and we'll probably all sin again. But we have to repent whenever we do. We've got to change. Romans 6.23 talks about the penalty of sin is death. That's why Jesus Christ had to die on a cross. He took upon himself the sins of the world. The sins of the world. People don't even understand that today. But they will one of these days. The Bible mentions numerous places that Christ died for our sins. When a person is called into the church of God, let's notice two places here in Acts chapter 2. There are a couple of things we have to do. Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. And a number of the people listening to him say, look, we believe you. Now what do we do? In Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's why we're baptized, to wash our sins away. Repentance comes from a word that means change. It means to literally turn around with sorrow and go in a different direction. Repentance is not the same as remorse. Remorse is when you get caught. Ah! Remorse doesn't mean you're going to change. It just means you're mad because you got caught. Repentance means that you change, that I change. We want to do things differently. We want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is all about. When you learn about the Sabbath and you've been keeping Sunday, you repent. Say, God, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. Or in some cases, God, I'm sorry, I got misled again. Your repentance involves change. As one, I think Mr. Armstrong said about one person, he said, you know, he really is good at repentance, he just never changes. No, we've got to change whenever God shows us mercifully what it is that we need to change. That's what these Days of Unleavened Bread are all about. Acts 3.19, similar statement. Acts 3.19. Again, part of, um, I think it's Peter's preaching here. It says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. To repent and be converted is literally to change your life. You start keeping the Sabbath. You start keeping the holy days. You start nourishing God's spirit. 
You strive to be led by God's spirit. And hopefully people will say, you know, you're a different person. You're a different person. You don't fly off like you used to. You don't lie like you used to. You don't do various things like you used to. You know, we should be different people as a result of repentance and conversion. If we don't change, then we're not really converted. We're still the old person. Notice a couple of other scriptures, because this theme runs through the scriptures. It's not just a New Testament concept. Go to Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs 28. The New Testament builds on the Old Testament. In fact, there are explanations in the Old Testament that we need to go there to find out what you know, the New Testament authors are actually writing about in some cases. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Solomon understood this, and he's writing about 1,000 B.C., almost 3,000 years ago. So when the, uh, verse 13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them We'll have mercy. You know, if we hide our sins, or try and hide our sins, God can't forgive. But if we acknowledge, God, I'm sorry, I made a mess, I messed up, I went off in the wrong direction, please forgive me, then God can be merciful. You know, if your, sin, or if your kids confess their sins to you, Mom, Dad, you know, I broke that thing out there. I'm not going to blame it on my brother or my sister. <laughs> I did it. I remember we were out um, one night <clears throat> whenever I was growing up. We had a little kid next door. He was a terror to the neighborhood. And uh, we came home and uh, we noticed uh, our bird bath in the backyard was busted. The pieces were laying there and there was a hammer laying right beside it. And uh, I think both my brother and I said, I think we know who did it, Dad. It was the kid next door. So my dad goes over with a, with, with a hammer. Actually, he had the hammer behind his back. <laughs> he said, Mr. So-and-so, he said, uh, I think your son just uh, broke our bird bath. Oh, my son would never do anything like that. He wouldn't do anything like that. My dad said, whose hammer is this? Is this yours? He said, yeah. He said, it was laying by the bird bath. Oh, my son didn't do it, though. Because he asked his son, Joe, we'll call his son Joe. <laughs> he said, Joe, did you break that bird bath? No! But the hammer was there, the broken bird bath was there, but the kid didn't want to fess up. You know, the Bible says if, if we're willing to confess what we've done, then God can forgive and show mercy. You might want to read through Psalm 51 <clears throat> as you go through the days of unleavened bread, where David had committed a horrible sin that was very obvious to the whole nation. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then David confessed his sin, not to a priest, but to God. He said, against you and against you only have I sinned. And he said, wash me off, clean me up, and point me in a different direction, and I will serve you. And if we have that attitude, God, please forgive me. Thank you for calling me. Guide me. Show me the direction I need to go. Then God can mold and fashion all of us. But if we try and sweep things under the rug, oh, it's not my problem. I don't have that problem. Because everybody else realizes we do. You know, God can't work with us until we do acknowledge these things. 
it's so much easier to say, I messed up, I'm sorry, than come up with all kinds of 50 or 60 reasons why it's not my problem. Okay, let's look then, how do we examine ourselves? What do we look for? I want to give you five areas, things to look for. Keeping in mind, we read in 1 John 3, 4, that sin is the transgression of the law. And getting rid of leaven is getting rid of sins in our lives. If we go back to Exodus chapter 20, because these are the, the laws that we're talking about. These are the foundational laws. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. You might want to spend some time, maybe sit down some evening, and read through Exodus chapter 20 and, and just ask yourself mentally and ask God mentally. Maybe even pray before you do this. God, show me. Are there any things that I need to get rid of where I'm not keeping the Ten Commandments? Mr. League told a little joke about the lady that uh, was doing all kinds of things that Jesus wouldn't do. But ask yourself, am I doing what Jesus Christ would do? Or am I doing things he wouldn't do? Do I have any other gods before the true God? Where do you spend your time? What do you spend your time thinking about? What is the focus of your life? Is it God-centered or is it centered on you or me? Well, I worry about this, I worry about that, my reputation, my this, my that. Or is our heart really in the work of God? Do we want God to mold and fashion us, or do we want God to keep his hands off? Do we have any other gods before the true God? Can you afford the big car that's sitting in your driveway? Can you afford the big screen TV that's on your wall? Or are these gods? What about uh, your boyfriend, your girlfriend? Are they gods in your life? Or does God come first? That dovetails into this not having any graven images. Some religious organizations do have a lot of little images. Well, they're they're just there to remind us. How does a little image remind you of an all-powerful God? You know, the Bible talks about God's voice literally shakes the earth. We've had a chance to walk behind the waterfalls up in Niagara Falls, have these tunnels that go down. And when you're walking through these tunnels and tons of water are going over Niagara Falls, the earth literally shakes. It's an awesome feeling. Little idols don't come close to reminding people of the true God. That's why God says don't make these images. Do you ever take the name of God in vain? If you do, that's something that needs to go. Verse 8, it says, remember the Sabbath day. And some people are told today, well, every day is my Sabbath. The Bible doesn't say that. God set the Sabbath apart and hallowed it and made it holy at creation. Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath. The apostles kept the Sabbath. They weren't keeping every day of the week. They were keeping the weekly Sabbath. Do we remember the Sabbath? Do we keep it holy? And then these other commandments here, honoring your father and your mother. And some of you are adults. Maybe your mother and father is still alive. Do we honor our parents as adults? 
And my son, Scott, was uh, working with his son, Colin. And Colin made some comments. He says, Dad, you're 40 years old, and I'm only 10. You're four times older than I am. So that's really old. You know, we, we need to honor our parents regardless of how old we are or how young we are. And this is something we have to teach our children, hopefully by word and by example. Because if we tell them to do something and we don't do it, then they realize there's a disconnect there. Not killing, not stealing, not committing adultery. These things are still commandments that we need to follow. So this is something you can do is to examine yourself. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5 very quickly. Matthew chapter 5. Because some people are told today, well, Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law and we don't have to do it. Um, You know, it's all in our heart today. But notice what Jesus actually said. And if you've not done this, you need to do it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus makes a very interesting statement. Do not think that I came to destroy the law. I did not come to destroy the law. The word here means to annul the law or do away with the law. Don't think. Don't even begin to think that I came to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Some people say, yeah, he fulfilled it, therefore we don't have to. Or we can't do it, so Jesus did it for us. That's not what it means. There's a prophecy about Jesus Christ, what he would do. Isaiah 42 and verse 21. <clears throat> so the Lord is well pleased with his righteousness sake, or for his righteousness sake, talking about Jesus Christ. And he will exalt the law and make it honorable. Not do away with it, but exalt the law. Magnify, I think the old King James says. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. When you take a magnifying glass and hold it over anything, hold it over your your Bible, hold it over a cup or something, what do you see? It magnifies, it expands. Uh, You see more in it than you saw before. That's what it does. So Jesus was prophesied to come and magnify the law, not do away with it. If you go back to Matthew 5 and you just read through the end of the chapter, He gives a number of examples there. Uh, He talks about um, not committing adultery. He says in verse 27, you've heard that it was said to those of old, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks after a woman, you could say, or a man, to lust after that person. You're you're breaking the commandment spiritually. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, I think. Most of you know this, but we need to review it from time to time. It's not just wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to lust after people. You break the letter, you can break the spirit. And Jesus gives a number of examples here of the spiritual applications of the Ten Commandments. That's what he came to do. In fact, the words here fulfill, if you look it up in the Greek, the the Greek word is plero, P-L-E-R-O-O, pleru. It means to complete. It means to bring to perfection. In other words, you you pull it all together. You see all the dimensions of it. That's what it means. He didn't come to do away with the law. He came to magnify it so that we can see how it applies physically 
as well as spiritually. And then he gives a number of examples through Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus did not come to do away with the law, and yet people are told that today. In Matthew 19, he gives another example that the law has not been done away with. It was not completed in the sense that uh, you know, he did everything for us and we don't have to worry about it. Matthew 16, <clears throat> excuse me, 19, verse 16 through 19. Matthew 19, verses 16 through 19. says, now one came to him and said, uh, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? In other words, how can I gain eternal life was the question. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. But if you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Again, some people are told Jesus only gave us two. All we have to do is love God and love our neighbor. And yet here Jesus is saying, I want you to keep the commandments. And the guy says, which ones? And then Jesus tells him, verse 18, you shall not murder, you not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, this is how you love your neighbor. You don't commit adultery with his wife or her husband. You don't uh, lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal. That's how you love your neighbor. Now, some people have said, you know, well, Jesus didn't command us, and there's nothing in the New Testament that tells us about the Sabbath. Well, you know, the first four commandments tell us how to love God. And if you notice in Luke 4.16, you might just want to jot these down. It says, Jesus went into the synagogue as his custom was on the Sabbath. And some people say, well, it was just his custom. We don't have to do it, though. It was his habit. It's what he was taught to do. It's a commandment. He understood which day that God had commanded to be observed. So Jesus kept the Sabbath. In Acts 17, verse 2, it says, Paul kept the Sabbath as his custom was. And the argument is, well, he was just a Jew. No, he was a Christian. He was following the example and the teachings of Jesus Christ. So you've got two very clear examples, uh, that uh, Christ and the, uh, the apostles, and you go to Acts chapter 13, a couple of different places, it mentions that Paul spoke on the Sabbath. And then the Gentiles came and said, would you preach to us next Sunday? No. <laughs> they said, would you preach to us next Sabbath? And Paul said, I will. He didn't say, no, I, I just go to the Jews on, on Sabbath and I'll come talk to you guys on Sunday. He didn't say that. You know, the early church kept the Sabbath until about 300 or so A.D. when the Roman Catholic Church began putting pressure on people and persecuting people who continued to Judaize, continued to keep the Sabbath. So there are instructions in the New Testament, very clear ones about keeping the Sabbath. Very quickly, how do we keep the Sabbath? And you might think about this in the context of the Days of Unleavened Bread. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. Some instructions for keeping the Sabbath, because the... Jews and the Israelites, both before they went into captivity, both of them turned away from God and his laws and began violating the Sabbath. Verse 13, if you turn your foot from the Sabbath, in other words, take your foot off of my holy time, is what God is saying, from doing your pleasure. You don't go to the mall, don't go to the movies, uh, don't watch your favorite television program. You know, the Sabbath is a day of worship. 
It's a day to come away from the world to draw closer to God. So he's saying if you take your foot from the Sabbath and doing your pleasure on my holy day and you call the Sabbath a delight, I can't wait for the Sabbath to come. We look forward to the Sabbath, the holy day of the Lord, not of the Jews, the holy day of the Lord, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. You know, to take the time to literally come away from the world and draw closer to God. Talk about spiritual things. Focus on the purpose of life. Use some time through the days of unleavened bread to examine yourself. Am I doing things God's way? Am I thinking the way Jesus Christ would think? Notice the reward, verse 14. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. I'm going to bless you if you do things God's way. Again, people are told, well, the Sabbath is a big burden. You know, God would not want me to lose my job over the Sabbath. Then I wouldn't be able to provide for my family. Uh, you know, we can't do this on the Sabbath, can't do that on the Sabbath. I remember I got a phone call from a young fellow one time and said, uh, you'll never guess where I am. I heard a bunch of yelling and screaming in the backyard. He said, I'm in a private booth watching a university of whatever football game. Universities play their games on when? Saturday afternoons. This young fellow was raised keeping the Sabbath. But it was a new experience to be in this very privileged place on the Sabbath. You know, we can't play games like that. We go to uh, 1 John. And this is New Testament teaching, New Testament theology by the Apostle John, who was a favorite of Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, I didn't mark this in my Bible, so we'll see if we can find it. Verse 4, it says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. So if we tell people that we love Jesus or love the Lord, but we're not keeping the commandments of God, we believe they've been done away with, the Bible says that person is a liar. First John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not a burden. They're not a burden. They're a blessing. And God promises blessings if we keep his commandments. So the first thing that we need to do in examining ourselves, maybe sit down with the booklet that we publish on the Ten Commandments that literally amplifies, gives a number of examples of how to keep the commandments of God. Jesus did not come to nail the commandments to the, to the cross. In Colossians 2.16, he nailed our sins to the cross. He nailed our sins to the cross. He did not nail the commandments of God 
to the cross. And yet these are what people are told today in some places. So take some time to examine your life. I need to do mine. You need to do yours. It's not going to do you a lot of good if you look at my life. (laughs) It's not going to do me a lot of good to look at, well, you're not doing that right. You're not doing that right. No, we each are responsible for the decisions that we make. And we need to be asking God, God, show me. Show me what I need to see. Help me understand what I need to change so that you can mold me and fashion me and prepare me for the future. So in examining ourselves, let's examine ourselves in light of the commandments of God. The second thing is to ask yourself, do I really show love for others? How well do I show love for others? The word love here in the Greek that we're talking about is agape, A-G-A-P-E, which means an unselfish, outgoing concern where you really care for other people. In In John 13, we'll be reading this tomorrow night at the Passover. In John chapter 13. And we're dealing with the fundamentals of Christianity. And if we lose sight of the fundamentals, we will probably lose out on the reward. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus was talking to his disciples the night of the Passover. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus gave his life, not only for his disciples, but for all mankind. As we're told in John 3.16, that God so loved the world, the entire world, that he sent Jesus Christ to die for us. So Jesus is saying here, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this love, by this care, the concern, the compassion for other people, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, brethren, I think we can kid ourselves sometimes. Well, I'm a Christian. You know, I come to church on the Sabbath. I tithe. I keep the holy days. But we still harbor thoughts about that rotten person that I work with or that this person or that person. Yet we can't function that way. If we do, we're hypocrites. We really do have to change. You know, John mentions in in, uh, Revelation chapter 3 about the Philadelphia church. And this is the small church at the end of the age. But Philadelphia means a church of brotherly love. You know, how close do you feel with the people that you're sitting next to? Do you know the person sitting next to you? (laughs) How close do you feel to the people you work with? Do you work with friends or you just tolerate the person you work with? You know, if we're part of the Philadelphia church, which we believe we are, 
we should be reflecting this kind of brotherly love, sisterly love, where we care for each other. Do you pray for the people that you work with? Do you pray for your family members? Do you pray for your friends and neighbors? Do people recognize there's something about you where you care for other people? That's what Jesus is talking about. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul is talking about love, describing the qualities of godly love. 1 Corinthians 13. And this is something to think about and meditate on as we go through the days of unleavened bread. How can I show more love for the people that I encounter, the people that I talk about? Do our comments about people reflect love and concern, or do they justify us? Well, I'm not that way. Or so-and-so is a real jerk. Not a lot of love in those statements. 1 Corinthians 13, breaking in in verse 4, it says, Love suffers long and is kind. One translation I went through recently, it says, Love suffers very long. Love suffers very long and is very kind. Doesn't have limits. Well, I've been kind enough. No, love suffers very long and is very kind. Love does not envy. Why did that person get ahead of me? Love does not parade itself. I got my way, da-da-da-da-da. Doesn't parade around like that. Love is not puffed up. That should have a lot of meaning during the days of unleavened bread. Not filled with a lot of hot air. Not filled with a lot of vanity. Love cares. And we need to ask ourselves, do I reflect this? Love does not behave itself rudely. Just blurting out things. Love does not seek its own. It doesn't have its own agenda. Well, I'm going to get my way sooner or later. Love doesn't have an agenda like that. It's not provoked or not easily provoked. It's not touchy. It's not explosive. You know, some people are like a, a Roman candle. You light their button or you press their button. <laughs> it's all over the place. That's not a converted attitude. That's a carnal attitude. Men have it. Women have it. And you can't excuse that. It's not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. I'm watching that person. I know there's something up. No, love behaves very differently. Does not rejoice in iniquity. Ah, they got caught. I knew it. I knew it. That doesn't rejoice that way. It rejoices in the truth. That God is merciful, that God is gracious. Love bears all things. Other translations say love overlooks all things. It overlooks faults. Yeah, they have a certain fault, but you know, they're God's children. Love believes all things. It's not naive. It's not a Pollyanna. But it believes the best. I know God is working with them. God will bring things along. 
All things work to the good for those who trust God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. It's hopeful. It's positive. I know these things will work out. I don't understand right now totally what's going on, but God's in charge and it'll work out. It endures all things. It doesn't quit. It endures all things. Love never fails. A loving person doesn't come out with, I've had it. I'm out of here. I'm going. I quit. We need to ask ourselves, where do I fit in these descriptions? And it talks about whether the prophecies, uh, they will fail or they will be fulfilled. Whether there are tongues, they shall cease. Where there's knowledge, it will vanish away. But these qualities of love are extremely important. Are we exhibiting these things? In many cases, we're going to be tried and tested in these areas. We'll have opportunities to say, I'm quitting, I'm out of here, I'm gone. I've had it, I've reached my limit. I can't forgive, I've already forgiven 490 times. That's all the Bible says I have to do. (laughs) No, that's an example. That's an example. You know, these, this is something to look at. Let's look at one other thing. And we're coming up on time. Galatians chapter 5. We need to ask ourselves, am I bearing the fruits of God's spirit? Well, we're told in Acts 5.32 that God gives his spirit to those who obey him. See, those that keep the commandments of God and that are striving to keep the commandments of God. Paul talks about in uh, Galatians 5 here, works of the flesh and works and fruit of the spirit. And you might take some time during the days of unleavened bread just to sit down and read through this and ask yourself, where am I? Where am I on this continuum? What have I been like the last week? What have I been like the last year? Uh, What do I need to be like? It says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not under the penalty of the law anymore because you're doing things right. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Let's talk about sexual vices and things like that that are wrong, lusting, coveting, and so on. Idolatry, you have your little idols in your, in your life. Sorcery, getting off into weird stuff. Hatred. As one individual told me one time, I really love the church. It's just the people that I can't stand. <laughs> I love the church, but I just can't stand the people that are there. And we've got to think about these things. That's not a Christian attitude. It's not a converted attitude. God could have said, I love the creation. Look at those trees and the ocean. It's just those people that mess it up. And we have to get rid of them. No, God is a loving God. He created us in his image. Sorcery, hatred, contentions. Well, I'm just an argumentative person. That's just the way I am. Well, then you're not converted. You're not reflecting the fruits of God's spirit. You haven't changed. See, there's repentance and changes involved. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath. Well, I'm just, I'm just that way. No, these are things we have to change. We can't stay that way. 
Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. I'm going to get my way sooner or later. Just watch. No, you got your own agenda. Dissensions and heresies, divisions and arguments, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries. Uh, it says, those who practice such things, last part of verse 21, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Even though you keep the Sabbath, even though you keep the holy days, even though you tithe, if we don't make these kinds of changes and get rid of this kind of leaven, we can't bring this into the kingdom of God. We're just not going to be there. But the fruit of the Spirit, now some of these things are repeats, is love. This unselfish, outgoing concern where you care for people. You care for God. You care for God's way of life. Joy. You're excited about your calling. It's not a burden. I'm looking forward to the Sabbath. I'm looking forward to the Holy Days. I'm looking forward to the feast. I'm looking forward to many others coming into the body of Jesus Christ. It's exciting to see this room getting full. Those that are way up there in the back are going to get nosebleeds. It would be nice to have that balcony full too up there. Except the Bible says we're going to be a little flock. It's not that easy to follow Jesus Christ and his teachings today. But if we're striving to put into our lives this kind of love and joy and peace, you're at peace with yourself. And sometimes people wrestle with themselves. They know what the truth is, but they they don't want to do it. And it does not create peace of mind. But if you're at peace with yourself, you know that God loves you, that God's way works. You know where God's church is. Gives you a peace of mind, long-suffering, kindness. Again, Paul talked about that in other contexts. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. How do you treat people? Do you treat them gently? No, i got to get rough once in a while. I get the point. There's a time for being firm, but you can still be firm and gentle at the same time. Against these things there are no law. Notice also just a couple of other verses here in verse 13. The the issue here in Galatians was the the Judaizers trying to push circumcision and a bunch of rituals on new Christians. And Paul mentions that it's, it's nonsense. It's not necessary. Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. That doesn't mean all the laws are done away with. You don't have to get into all these rituals that uh, some would like you to get into. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled even by this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But notice in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you are consumed by one another. Other translations say, if you attack and wound each other and tear each other apart, you will destroy each other and you will destroy your fellowship. You will destroy your fellowship if you're attacking each other. So Paul had to deal with interpersonal issues. Uh, This was in a congregation. Final thing to talk about just a little bit is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And this is the positive thing here, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And you could expand on this. But Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy was a young preacher, a young evangelist. 
He's giving Timothy guidelines. So this here's how you have to conduct yourself, how you need to conduct yourself if you're going to be effective. And this could be applied to us as Christians today. Verse 12, it says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example. Be an example to the believers. And this applies to all of us in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. To be an example. If we can strive as we go through the days of unleavened bread, to strive to be an example in everything that we do, in how we talk to people, and how we talk about people with positive comments, not negative comments, in our conduct, what people see us do. As Mr. League mentioned, if you've got a sticker on the back of your car that says Living Church of God or Tomorrow's World, people will make a connection. If you're yelling out your window, as I saw some guy do on the way home Friday night, he didn't make it around the corner before the light changed. You could hear the top of his car was open. And everybody around him could hear a bunch of profanity. Now, he didn't have a sticker, fortunately. (laughs) But it was not Christian conduct. He was just frustrated. He didn't get through the light. But if we've got a sticker there that advertises who we are, chances are somebody from Living Church of God might be behind you. (laughs) But in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, we're to be an example. It's interesting when you read through First and Second Timothy, uh, Paul tells Timothy, use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your often infirmities. In other words, it's okay to drink some alcohol, but you know, don't become drunk. He talks about exercise. He says physical exercise profits for a little while. Spiritual exercise is good forever. But he's not putting down the physical exercise. Our bodies need that. Because if we're not physically exercising, we're going to accumulate things that we don't really want. You know, it just happens that way, and then we wind up with problems. He talks about women's dress in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says it should be decent. It should be modest. In 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about hair lengths for men and women. In Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about the roles of women, the roles of men. And you might find, ask yourself as you read those verses, does the hair go up in the back of your neck? Well, I don't want to do that. He's getting personal now. Or do we take it and say, look, this is the direction we should be going. These are all things that we can do to examine ourselves. Look at the laws of God. Ask ourselves if we're showing love. Are we bearing the fruits of God's spirit? Or what kind of spirit? What kind of fruits? Do people see in our lives? What does God see in our lives? To wind this all up, set some goals for yourself as you go through the days of unleavened bread. Examine yourself and make a list of things that you need to change or that you would like to change. Do I show love? Am I patient? Do I endure? Do I have a a temper? Uh, Make a list of some things. The Bible talks about in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, it says, ponder the path of your feet. Think about where you're going. Think about what's it going to take to be in the kingdom of God. What are the changes that I need to make so that God can use me as a more effective instrument in his hands? 
Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17, talks about making the most of every opportunity that you have. You know, if God has called you today, if he's opened your mind to understand his plan and purpose, if he brought you in contact with his church, that is a very special calling today. You know, never take that lightly. And ask God, God, you called me, you brought me here. It's your fault. Now, how do you want to use me? Point me in the direction that you want me to go so that I can use the talents and the abilities and things that you've given me. And then strive to bear fruit with that. Ponder the path of your feet. Make a list of things that you need to change. And maybe ask yourself, how will I be different? How could I be different? By the feast. How could I be different by this time next year at the next Passover? What would you like to change? Ask God to show you and ask God to help you with those things. Maybe go back and read Psalm 51 when you go home tonight. Where David said, I've sinned against you and you only. You know, please forgive. Wash me off. (laughs) Clean me up. Point me in a direction so that you can use me very powerfully. Let's use these opportunities of the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread to draw closer to God, to let him draw closer to us. And let's make the changes and ask God to help us see the changes that we need to make so that he can use us to bear fruit that he can use to literally turn the world right side up.